And as we continue our study in 1 Timothy, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's found on page 1178 of the Pew Bible, if you're following along there. 1178, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 8 in just a moment. You might remember from last time that we sought, uh, we tried to ground ourselves in what God's word as a whole says about manhood and womanhood before diving into these specific verses. When we did a little of that last week, I hope that you saw with me that the Bible contains two clear streams of teaching on this important topic. The Bible is adamant that men and women in this life and in the next are equal in essentials, but also different in roles. To get this message across, you might recall, I gave you two pillars, two pillars to stand between, to balance. The first pillar I titled, In Essentials Equal. In essentials equal. In our essential being, we are equal. Women and men are both made in the image of God. Both have eternity dwelling within them. Because of this, both male and female life are together sacred, absolutely sacred before God. That might sound obvious to us today, but female children, female children continue to be aborted, in some places at a higher rate than male children. Historians have found that the Romans, for example, rarely raised more than one daughter, choosing to abort or expose any other girls who came along. In deep contrast to this, Baylor historian Rodney Stark points out that the Christians refusing abortion and exposure regularly raised more girls or saved the exposed girls. Not only that, but in the Christian community, unlike the Roman culture, girls and women who died were just as likely to have tomb inscriptions, inscriptions on their tomb, as the boys and men. Early Christians then embraced, unlike the Romans, the full and essential equality of men and women as the image of God. But this essential equality that we share is seen climactically, finally, not on tombs or in ancient records, as fascinating as all that is, but climactically at Pentecost, as the Spirit comes upon the whole church. Women and girls in those early days did prophesy and speak in tongues. All Christian women, all Christian women are, along with Christian men, endowed with the Holy Spirit and in vital living union with the risen Christ by faith. Paul knew this, and Paul was unafraid to call women his, quote, fellow workers, end quote, or to mention women who, quote, worked side by side with him in the gospel, end quote. He also calls the church, for example, in Romans 16, to honor such women and to recognize their gifts and service. As I noted last week, mature churches, wise churches, and mature husbands will delight 
delights in female giftedness and will obey Paul's command to develop, honor, and make use of sister giftedness. However, alongside that first pillar in essentials equal, if we are going to be faithful, we must erect a second pillar. The second pillar reminds us that in calling in this life only, but in calling in this life, we remain distinct with very different roles. The scriptures repeatedly and emphatically call on wives to submit joyfully, intentionally to their husbands, often adding a phrase such as, in all things, or as unto the Lord. With this, and in harmony with it, the church of Christ has universally, until now, restricted women from roles of direct teaching authority in the church. As we'll see today and next week, the same Paul who loved and praised godly women and their gifts, that same Paul calls Timothy to refuse to women these roles for the sake of order in this life. This is not a popular teaching. The cultural winds blow hard. Back then in Rome, in the days of Paul, demeaning women was all the rage. That was the norm, and scripture opposed the norm. Now, today, the culture says we must overthrow all order, all authority to be truly ourselves, to become our full selves, and scripture now opposes that. So thank God, thank God for the pillars of his word, which are there to save us from being blown about by every wind of doctrine. And thank God above all, as we saw last week, for the cross, the cross between the pillars, where men who have been dismissive and cruel to women can come and kneel and repent and find forgiveness, and where wives who have not submitted to their husbands can likewise come and find forgiveness, where men and women together can come and have peace in the presence of our wonderful Savior. With introduction, would you please stand as we read God's word again, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll begin reading for context with verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do thank you for your word, which is a lamp and light to our path. 
how we need its correction, its inspiration, its direction. Remind us even this morning that these words are not the dead words of a man long gone, but the words of the living Christ from heaven as he speaks through the Apostle Paul. And so let every knee bow at the name of Jesus and every tongue confess him and every heart now receive his word with joy and with gladness that he might be lifted up in our presence and that we might give him the worship he so deserves. Father, we pray that you would do this for his sake and we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, you were very patient with me as I laid some groundwork in for these verses. Today, let's just jump right into the text of Scripture. So first of all, notice with me that, children, that women, sorry, women in church must learn. Number one, women in church must learn. Our text begins with an imperative, a, a positive Command. Verse 11 reads, we're beginning there in verse 11, let a woman learn. Uh, ladies who recently were re involved in our book study, and some of you read, I know, gentle and lowly, you might recognize uh, this word. Paul uses here the same Greek word used by Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Every disciple, brother or sister, is called to maturity, to learn, to grow and develop in the faith, to learn of Christ and to learn from Christ. But notice here in verse 11, specifically, that Paul is commanding Timothy primarily. He's not actually here commanding directly anyway the women in the church at Ephesus, but rather he's speaking to Timothy. He's telling Timothy as an elder of the church and a minister of the gospel to ensure, to make sure of the ongoing discipleship of the women of the congregation. As we saw last week, Jesus set this standard. He set this standard himself by taking the time to instruct and disciple women during his ministry. A lot of rabbis didn't do that. In fact, the majority did not, but Christ did. Christ, of course, was fulfilling, as the greater Moses, he was fulfilling the law, which you heard er, read earlier by Elder Boyajan. Deuteronomy 31, 12, Moses commands, assemble the people, men and women, and little ones, families in worship, and the sojourner even within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. Now, this might sound obvious to us today, but remember in context that Paul has just mentioned, just mentioned a few verses earlier, two possible hindrances obstacles to the spiritual formation of the church when they're worshiping. 
To use the words of one commentator, Paul has just said in verses 8 and 9 that women are to learn free from the bane of male anger and free from the buzz of female vanity. Because men often value victory and competition over relationship, they can create a church culture in which constant strife makes it all but impossible for a woman to learn. Likewise, women of the church can poison the church environment with drama and dress, making it difficult to simply come and learn in peace. In upcoming verses, verses we'll see in the future, Paul will mention to Timothy other threats to female discipleship in the congregation. Paul warns Timothy of men in authority in the church already who are seeking inappropriate contact with the women of the congregation. These men, says Paul, are themselves, these men, these false shepherds, are themselves signs that we are living the last days, the last age of the church. He writes in 2 Timothy 3, 7, quote, For among them, among these leaders, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray, end quote. In opposition to all of this, in opposition to all this, Paul will call Timothy later in this letter. He'll say, Timothy, treat the younger women like your sister and treat the older women like your mother. When women come to church, when our sisters come to church, they should feel free from men, especially the elders, but all the men of the church flirting with them, seeking them out inappropriately, or seeking to control them. Women face these realities. As a father with daughters, I can tell you, my wife will tell you, women face these realities from men every day of their life, every day of their regular life. The church should be a refuge from the constant attention and unwanted pursuit by men. So Timothy and the elders here and elsewhere in these letters are called to provide a quiet, safe, and orderly setting in which the sisters of the church can learn and grow without harassment or distraction. Following our Lord Jesus, we as elders will want to create a space for women to sit calmly at Jesus' feet as Mary did and as Martha needed to do. Beyond this church building, we who are fathers and husbands must do all that we can to ensure that our wife and our daughters, if we have them, are flourishing as students of God's holy word. With Paul then, let me warn you, look out for men in the church who seek to dominate, control, and abuse women. This is an epidemic issue in the church today. I'll spare you, for the sake of dignity, scandalous story after scandalous story. You know the stories. But in almost every case, a woman, a poor woman comes to church or comes to a pastor or a male authority figure in order to learn or to be helped. But in the end, the wicked shepherd devours his own lamb. 
revealing himself to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. With Paul then, with the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, let me say, watch out for the dogs. So let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. Second of all, second of all, within that setting of learning, Paul wants women, you note, to learn in a particular way. He says, let a woman learn quietly, quietly. The sisters in the congregation are to be disciples and theologians, but in a way that is marked by calm. But what does that really mean? Well, notice that if you have the ESV in front of you, the ESV has very wisely chosen the word, not the word silence here, but the word quiet, quiet. This Greek word here and everywhere else in scripture never means silence, but quiet or receptive calm. So Paul is not suggesting here as we might be tempted because we're modern Americans to, to, to think that he's saying here that a woman is to keep her mouth shut. She's never to speak. He's not saying that a woman can't ask a question in a class or after the service or offer an opinion or especially speak up when she's being mistreated or serve on a committee as we have women serving on committees of our church or edifying us, encouraging us, even correcting privately in conversation the brothers of the congregation. The Bible tells us that this happens. Priscilla and her husband Aquila were told, taught the way of God in their home privately to Apollos. 1 Corinthians 11 gives rules and regulations for a godly woman when she prophesies in the church. The early church had the gift of prophecy, revelation, and women prophesied in that context. And there were rules for doing that because they were women. We'll get to that in a moment. But they were doing it. They weren't silent. They were quiet, but not silent. We may not practice those apostolic gifts today. But the very fact that Paul would write such instructions clearly shows that he did not expect or want absolute silence from the women in the church. Or maybe we can think of passages like, Colossians 3.16. Paul writes the Colossians, quote, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Now, when read in its context, it is very hard, impossible, I think, to limit those verses to the men of the congregation only. Paul seems to expect here that informal, informal, private, mutual edification will be happening in the church. In fact, singing, as we like to remind you uh, regularly, singing is part of that edification. We, of course, when we're singing together as a congregation, we're singing first and foremost to God. It's a sweet-smelling offering to him and his temple, but we're also singing for the encouragement of each other. Sometimes we're singing to each other. Finally, to all of this, we can add passages in Philippians and Romans where Paul viewed women as co-workers in ministry. They could not have been absolutely silent for that to have taken place. He says, they work side by side with me in the gospel. So if the word does not mean absolute silence... And Paul's other letters do not allow us to interpret it that way. What does it mean 
to learn quietly. We can't just ignore Paul's teaching here and throughout his letters. We can't just say what it doesn't mean. We have to say, okay, what does it mean? I think the rest of Scripture makes it clear that Paul means quiet here in terms of the official teaching of the church, the authoritative and official teaching of the church. In fact, we see that, don't we, pretty clearly in the very next verse, in verse 12, where this same word quiet comes again. Verse 12 reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain what? Quiet. The quiet here then is not absolute silence. Rather, it is limited to the official authoritative teaching of the church. In fact, the word used here for teaching in verse 12 I don't suffer, I don't allow a woman to teach. That word teach is used all through the pastoral epistles for just that kind of instruction, authoritative instruction. Thus saith the Lord instruction. For one example, in chapter 4, verse 16 of this letter, Paul tells Timothy, quote, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Remember the context, brothers and sisters, always the context when we're studying scripture. We are in a section, it began in chapter 2, verse 1. We are in a section that is about the public worship of God's people. Immediately after this section, there's no break. Remember the chapter divisions were done by a priest hundreds of years later. God did not write the Bible with chapter divisions. So immediately after saying this about women, what does Paul start talking about in chapter 3, verse 1? Overseers, elders in worship. So the context here is the official gathering of the church for worship under elders for authoritative teaching that will, if faithfully heard, bring life. Or as Paul put it, if done scripturally, it will save both Timothy and his hearers. So then, with so many other faithful commentators and theologians, I think we must conclude that, yes, women share in the general scriptural call to edify one another, including to edify us as men privately. We can, and listen, men, we better be learning from the sisters in our church and in our home. They must not be silent because they have the Spirit of God. However, for reasons we will discover very soon, roles of official authoritative teaching violate Paul's command here for quiet learning. So we have, first of all, that women are to learn and that the elders, Timothy especially, are responsible throughout the New Testament for securing and ensuring their discipleship, for creating a space for them to thrive in their gifts and learning. Elders are overseers looking for wolves who've come into the church for bad purposes. They are to create, as much as it is in their power, a fertile and safe ground for everyone to learn and grow. Second, Paul wants that learning to happen in a quiet spirit. This doesn't mean silence, but it does mean that godly, mature Christian women will not attempt 
to take control over the church's teaching ministry. They are not to set themselves up as pastors or elders, giving authoritative teaching in the gatherings of the church. Now, thirdly, lastly, women in the church must learn in all submission. 1 Timothy 2.11 says, Let a woman learn, let a woman learn quietly, and now finally, let a woman learn with all submissiveness. So let's take a moment and talk about biblical submission. It might surprise you, especially if you're not a Christian or you're not familiar with the Bible, it might surprise you to hear that the New Testament uses the word submission and the idea of submission constantly, constantly. In fact, we could argue that much of the Christian life, really, for men and women, is exercising proper submission in all areas of the life. In the Bible, submission does not mean uh, uh, some kind of doormat experience, but rather something like sincere, thoughtful deference to another. It certainly does not mean doormat, and it's not something only women are called to do. Rather, submission is to play a big role in all of our lives. It's to characterize all of our relationships with each other. So, for example, in Romans 13, Paul commands the whole church, same language, to submit to all the ruling authorities using the same terminology, the secular ruling authorities. Paul writes in Romans 13:1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Paul is not compelling the church to be a doormat for Nero, the emperor, as we'll read in the book of Acts another time, there were limits to this submission. When the authorities told the church, stop preaching the gospel, the church said, we refuse, we have to obey God, not you. However, Paul is urging them, the church and us, that as much as it lies with us to live at peace with all men for the sake of the gospel, in as far as our conscience allows, we're to submit to the ruling authorities for the sake of the gospel. In other places, Paul uses the same terminology to describe how we are to treat the elders of the church. Maybe Hebrews 13, 17 comes into your mind, quote, obey your leaders, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch or overseeing for your soul, for your soul. Again, this does not mean a kind of blind, mindless obedience. Paul is constantly actually warning the church that false elders will creep in. The Bible praises, the Bible praises the Bereans. Remember them, the Berean church? Because Paul preached to them and what did they do? They went and searched the scriptures to make sure for themselves that what Paul was teaching was biblical and scriptural. And when they saw that it was, they submitted themselves to him as their leader. In the Gospel of Luke, and maybe this is the most powerful example of all, we're told these remarkable words, that Jesus, the Lord of glory, submitted, same word, same exact Greek word, submitted to his parents. In other words, Jesus knew himself to be the Lord of glory. He was no doormat, but consciously he chose submission to his parents as a way to glorify God for the sake of God's work in the world. Submission in scripture then 
is a conscious decision. It is the conscious decision of a believer to submit to another person for the sake of God's mission to the world. The conscious decision of a believer to submit to another person for the sake of God's mission to the world. Now that last part is really key. Submission is an act of devotion to God for the sake of God's mission. We don't submit because we are inferior, but because it serves the mission of God in the world. That's why Jesus was submitting to his parents. He was infinitely superior to them. And yet he submitted. Why? For the sake of the gospel. It's why Jesus submitted to baptism. He comes to John the Baptist and says, baptize me. And John the Baptist says, no way. It's unfitting that someone beneath you should baptize you. And what does Jesus say? It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to submit to the law. I'm going to submit to what every other Jewish man is required to do in the system of the law for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the cause for which I have come. So that is biblical submission. It is good. It's for all of us. And it's a marker, a critical marker of the true Christian life. But what about this particular verse? Who does Paul, who does Paul want the women of the church to submit to? It's very emphatic, all submission. But who? They're to learn quietly with all that is thorough submission. But who? To who? I think the Bible gives two very definitive answers to that question. And I don't know which one exactly Paul here has in mind. Uh, But in a sense, it doesn't matter because the Bible says both all over the place. And both could be true here. First of all, Paul almost certainly is thinking here of the elders of the church and of Timothy. Remember, the setting is worship. All the verses leading up to this are about the public gathering of God's people. The women and the men are there to learn. They're there to learn, to grow in Christ. Some of their behaviors, the way they're praying, their way they're dressing, have led to disorder, have led to chaos, have made it difficult to worship together like we're doing right now. And so it's in that context that Paul says to the women of the church, be in all submission. And so I think we're on very strong ground, very strong ground to say that Paul has in mind here probably primarily to the elders of the church, to the people who are leading you, the overseers who we're about to meet in just a few verses. But second of all, second of all, I think Paul almost certainly would have also had in mind the submission of a wife to her husband. In Ephesians 5, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and many probably other places I'm, I'm missing, Paul strongly advocates for wives to honor their husbands as husbands are to be sacrificial servant leaders. Certainly, Paul is concerned here that what happens at church does not undermine the order God has established in the home. For me, uh, personally, and I hope this is helpful for you, for me, one section of the New Testament brings all this teaching together for us in a really powerful and illuminating way. And that section of scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through chapter 14. We won't turn there now, but let me encourage you to read that whole section, not just verses out of context, 
But those four chapters together, some other time, sometime soon. Let me just give you an overview of the teaching there and let you explore it later. The context, of course, is the Corinthian church. This church was hugely gifted. I mean, hugely gifted. Rich financially, but also spiritually incredibly gifted. And yet, just as gifted as they were, they were greatly disordered. When they came together, Paul says, quote, Everyone has a hymn, everyone has a lesson, a revelation, a tongue. Their keeping of the Lord's Supper was also totally disordered. Some rushed ahead, some had much, some had little. 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, this pericope is the theological term if you want to know. This section is Paul's attempt to bring order to their disorder. His basic argument is that love, as in the middle of this argument, chapter 13, the love chapter, that love is the priority. Not just me exercising my gift, having my say, feeling good about my experience. He calls on them at the conclusion of this section. He says, no, 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 make love the priority. Do everything, quote, decently and in order. Decently and in order so that people will be built up. Church is not a place where you come to feel good about yourself because your poem, your lesson, your revelation got heard. He said, you need to make the priority the edification of everyone there. And you heard that read earlier a little bit. One person speak at a time, one prophecy at a time. And when someone prophesies, the elders better be there to say, yes, this is authoritative, this is accurate, or no, it's not. Now, among the disorderly things that were going on in Corinth, according to chapter 11, there were some women who were coming into worship Again, we're talking about worship, into worship, and they were uncovering their hair while they prophesied. Now understand, you've got to understand, in those days, across multiple cultures, Greeks, Romans, and Jews, covering your hair was a universal sign that you were a married woman, and you were a woman of modesty, and you were a woman of decency. It was something like today, when you, ladies, if you go to a bar with friends, uh, you've got, I hope your wedding rings on, right? Um, It was something like that. More than that, but something like that. Every married woman, every decent, modest woman would have had their hair covered. That was just the culture. Um, and, And so you can see why Paul is distressed. Can you see why he's distressed? It's not that Paul was actually worried about hair. You know, some women read this, oh, I better cover my hair when I come to church. Number one, you're not going to be prophesying here, so you don't need to have your hair covered. Um, We don't do that. We don't have that gift anymore, and there's no platform for you to do that here. So you don't need to have your hair covered. You can if you wish. It's it's beautiful. We love it, but you don't need to. Uh, Number two, that gift isn't, again, we don't believe is a revelational gift. It was part of the apostolic era. We don't believe it's here. But Paul's not concerned about hair here. He's concerned about what it meant for those women when they would come to church as an outside church, they're modest, Wives loving their husbands well, and they come to church and pull that thing off and start prophesying in the Holy Spirit. He's saying to them, what are you saying? What message are you sending to your husband? What message are you sending to the young women of the church? What are you doing there? Do you see? They were using, they were using their equality in the spirit. That's true. Pillar number one, right? They were using their equality in their spirit, pillar one, to overthrow pillar two. Be submissive to your husband. As if to say, when I'm prophesying, husband, I'm independent. I'm under no man's authority. I'm unmarried, 
as it were, for a few moments. Instead, Paul calls on them to do everything decently and in order. He reminds them in his famous chapter, chapter 11, that love is the goal, not just the exercising of my personal gift. He writes, let all things be done for building up, for God is not a God of confusion, doing one thing in the home, and then when we get to the church doing something different, no, he's not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. Paul gets, Paul knows, ladies, Paul gets that women are gifted. We know it as a church. You, you ladies are hugely gifted in the Holy Spirit. Paul knows, we as a session, know that women, our sisters, are equal to us in Christ. Some of us, some of the women are more mature in Christ. I often give the example, she'll forgive me, I hope, uh, Tata Violet, um, I give the example to my classes. I said, when I was ordained 17 years ago, and, and uh, Tata Violet voted for me to be her pastor, do you really think I was more spiritually mature than her? And all the kids go, no. <laughs> so why did she vote? She recognized a role in me, a calling in my life. She wasn't saying, you're superior to me in the Lord. She was saying, for the sake of the mission." For the sake of God's work, for the sake of the gospel in the world, I'll submit to this man as my pastor, even though to me he looks like a little boy in many, many ways. And I did. <laughs> because of all this that Paul's doing in, in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, when we get to the end of the section, 1 Corinthians 14, he directs the church. Remember, he's building this pattern of love and order. End of the section, 1 Corinthians 14, you heard Elder Boyajan read it. He directs the church to have only one per person prophesy at a time. And when the prophecy is complete, the prophecy just given is to be judged or evaluated. There must be an interpretation and an authorization of what has just been said. How do we know it's true, right? Paul immediately then says it's in that context, the interpreting and judging of prophecy, that Paul says these remarkable and often misrepresented words. Listen. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, there's our word, as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And people say, wait a second, this, Paul's contradicting himself. 1 Corinthians 11, when women are prophesying in the church, have your head covered for the sake of your husband. 1 Corinthians 14, don't say anything. Different contexts. In 1 Corinthians 14, he is talking about the authoritative teaching of the church. And he's saying, in those moments, you are not to have a man prophesying and have his wife standing there questioning him about his prophecy and deciding whether his prophecy is true for the church or not. That shames him. If you want to ask your husband about what he said in church, ask him in private. Ask him at home because God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of order and love and peace. Sadly, these words, I believe, have been abused to make women feel guilty for ever speaking at church at all, even after a service. But in context, Paul has just given instruction for women prophesying in church. So what's going on? It's, it's the official authoritative teaching of the elders. As the church developed, it was more and more, we'll see this in the pastoral letters, it is more and more the role of the elders as the gift of prophecy leaves the church 
Remember, those gifts are never mentioned in the pastoral letters, the last letters that Paul wrote. You can see the transition is happening. The apostolic gifts of tongues and prophecy, I believe, are fading away. What remains? The elders and pastors of the church teaching and preaching and edifying with the word of God. In fact, by the time we get through these letters, we'll see there isn't, I don't believe, one mention of those extraordinary gifts. The church here now is coming of age, and the whole focus of the pastoral epistles is not about those amazing gifts that have come with the breaking in of the kingdom, but rather the focus of the pastoral epistles is now will the church be a place of order and love, and will it hang on to the deposit? Will it face down false teaching, and will it hold true to what's been given to it? The deposit, we have the deposit, brothers and sisters. We have the Old and New Testaments. We don't need prophets giving us new revelation or speaking in tongues. What we need to do is hold fast and firm to the deposit that has been entrusted to us. And God is calling us all to do that. And he's calling the elders especially to oversee and lead in doing that. So with 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 before us and the rest of the Bible as well, I think we can rightly assume that when Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, He has in mind thoughtful submission to godly elders and maybe also a wife's submission to her own husband for the sake of the gospel. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul allows married women to speak in worship, but only with a symbol of marriage and authority on their head. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, he can say they're not to speak when the prophecies are being judged. If she has a question or concern about her husband, What he has just said, let her ask him in private rather than questioning him in front of the congregation and so shaming him and taking authority over him. So let's step back now and put all these pieces together. First, Paul wants women to learn. He wants women to learn. We want, we as elders want you sisters to learn. And he commands Timothy throughout to create a safe and appropriate space for that to happen. Second, Paul wants that learning to be marked by quietness, not silence, but quietness. Quietness does not mean women are unfit to speak or can't speak at all. It means that the women of the church in Ephesus must not interrupt or contradict publicly the elders of the church. The context is worship and the official teaching of the church. And lastly, women are to learn in all submissiveness. This is not, and just remind you, this is not every woman in the room submitting to every man in the room. Women do not have to walk into every room of our church, identify the nearest male, biological male, and start submitting to him. No, this is the women of the church submitting to their elders and to their own husbands in the Lord, especially in the context of worship. If all of this has left you with a lot of questions, The elders of our church have set aside a Sunday evening in June, June 11th, for a question and answer session here in the evening. And I want to invite you to that. I'll be up front and field questions and also give you more of the research that went into the creating of this sermon. Feel free to come and enjoy some respectful discussion and ask questions. But before you leave today... Let me ask you, in closing, to go one last place with me. One last place. Not a chapter in the Bible this time, or even a place in our world, 
But come with me for just a moment as we close. Come with me to Narnia. You know the story. The four children stumble through the back of a wardrobe, only to find themselves in a fantasy world. In that world, Narnia, Jesus is a lion named Aslan, who calls them to save Narnia together and become kings and queens together over it. Eventually, by Aslan's grace, they win, and four thrones are set up and they rule. If you know the story well, you know that the youngest of the four children is named Lucy. Lucy is, in every sense, the least of the children. She doesn't have a proper weapon like her older siblings. When the kings and queens of Narnia are named, she is always the last one named. Her oldest brother, the oldest of the children, Peter, is called the High King. And yet, as everyone knows who's ever read the story or watched the movie, it is Lucy, the least of the children, who captures our attention the most. I don't think this was an accident. I think Lewis, C.S. Lewis, was trying to capture the Lord's teaching that the first would often be last and that quite often the last would be first. Or the older teaching of the Torah, that the secondborn, the younger son, would often be the greatest despite appearances. As we watch Lucy throughout the books, we come away wanting to be more like her. She is far more in tune with the heart of Aslan than her siblings. In fact, this is already true. This is already true when Aslan appoints her older brother to be the high king. It's Lucy that sees Aslan first. It's Lucy that senses his presence first and often understands quickest what it means to be true to him. As the story proceeds, it becomes clear that as Peter listens to Lucy, he makes the best decisions for the group. But here is something I find fascinating and inspiring. For the most part, for the most part, Lucy doesn't waste her time trying to subvert Peter or speak truth to power. And except for one moment of temptation in the voids of the Don Treader, as far as I can tell, she's never too concerned about the pecking order. She's no doormat. She's no doormat mind, but she isn't overly worried about the order of authority who's in charge. Now, why is that? Why do readers always love Lucy the most and walk away wanting to be Lucy? Here's why. Because she's far more interested in Aslan himself than she is in Narnia. The other kids, right from the start, especially the boys, are captivated by the context. Peter is overwhelmed by his calling. Edmund wants power and resents his older brother. But she like Mary in the Gospels, has chosen the better portion, and she knows it. She isn't preoccupied with running the empire or who gets to sit on which throne. She realizes before any of them do that what actually makes Narnia great is not the animals or the thrones. It is the lion at the heart of Narnia. She really gets it. She gets that Narnia is just a place to get to know Aslan so that she will recognize him later in her real life. Now, let me connect this. Why in the world, if you're a woman hearing this teaching, 
Why in the world should you accept it? Why should you let something like this get down deep inside you and become part of your faith? Maybe some of us are even being tempted right now to say, okay, pastor, while I'm here at Grace, I'll abide by this because Pastor Ted and Pastor Matthew are known to be kind and respectful to women, so I'll I'll deal with it here. But if I'm somewhere else in 10 years and men are doing a bad job and I have a female friend who is hugely talented, maybe I'll just shift, go with the flow. Why should you submit to this? If you're thinking at all like that, I think you really haven't gotten down or gotten this teaching down into your heart. It's just floating on the surface. But how do you get it deep down? How does a woman accept something like this? I think Lucy gives us the answer. Only if you really know Jesus are you going to accept this teaching on womanhood. You're going to need his love, and you're going to need to trust him. And most important of all, you have to know how much he loves you and be incredibly secure in his love. When you know his love, when you figured out that this life isn't about Narnia, but it's about Aslan, when you've seen how he submitted himself to torture and death in order to save you and keep you for all eternity, then this doesn't seem so bad or so wrong or so hard. So why believe this? Why try to live it out? Because, sisters, Jesus loves you. Jesus calls you. And he has set up thrones for you. So don't be afraid. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for the sisters in our midst this morning, I pray that you would grant to them an understanding of the glory that awaits them in eternity. You've asked them for a very short time to submit to these things for the sake of the gospel and the mission. Help them to do so joyfully with a whole heart, knowing their value as their price has been set at the cross. Let nothing disturb them from their calling. No false teaching that would tell them to rebel. No rebellious spirit within them. No sense of shame or feeling less important or less valuable. Protect them, Father, by your Holy Spirit from these things. Show them the throne in which Christ is seated now and in which through him they are seated for all eternity. For the brothers of the church, grant us humble hearts. We are the firstborn, and to us in this life has been given the leadership in home and church. Father, we are not able in ourselves to do these things, let alone to image Christ in his sacrificial authority. So strengthen our hearts, help us to lead well, and to be tender shepherds firm and strong, loving and respectful, that you might be glorified in this place and that grace might be a place of order and love and beauty where something of Eden is recaptured. This we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.